Well, again, we want to thank you, our family, for all of your kindness and your friendship and your love and your accents and your different words. It's funny, you think, I don't mean you, but I think I don't have an accent and I talk normal. And I compare everything else by how I talk, but we all, I guess, have a little different twang and we have a little different way of saying things. And that's neat, and that's really super. But thank you so much for your kindness. I thought tonight there were two options. With all the rain, everybody might stay home, or there's nothing else to do, so you may as well come out. And it looks like a few people came out. Please take your Bible again and turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 6. And just to bring us into our text, I'll begin to read at verse 11 and down to the end of verse 18. And again, as I've mentioned a few times, I'm reading from the ESV. And we, in verse 11, desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is the final for confirmation. So when God desired to show show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement, to hold fast to the hope set before us. One of the great tragedies, sad tragedies of an apostate is that they have no one to blame but themselves for falling away. They don't think that. And if we're not careful, we will not think that as well. A person who at one time professes Jesus Christ and then subsequently renounces and rejects that profession really believes they have good reasons for not continuing in the faith and persevering. Some of them are blaming the church They're very disappointed with the church, either the church in general or their particular church, very frustrated. I'd continue, you know, if the church wasn't so irrelevant, so formal, if it wasn't so hypocritical, if it wasn't so out of date, if it wasn't this and if it wasn't that and it wasn't the other thing. Some people who have apostatized 
blame it on particular Christians. Well, my parents were Christians, and if that's being a Christian, who needs it? Well, we had a pastor in our church, and he proved to be a real hypocrite. Well, Sunday school teacher, whatever it might be. But ultimately, every apostate blames God. You know, the problem is that this gospel that God has announced is too strict, too confining. The Christian life is just too hard. God is unfair. He's unjust. God is this, and God is that, and God is the other thing, and I have good reasons to pack it in. Now, as we've been working through chapter 6, of course, we've been pulling in other parts of Hebrews, and we need to remember that uh, the preacher, not me, the preacher, but the preacher of this great sermon, the book of Hebrews, has two test cases or examples of apostasy. One is the individual, the twin brother of Jacob, and his name is Esau. The other is that adult generation of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And if you remember even reading through all that in the Old Testament or even reading through chapters 3 and 4 and so on in Hebrews, you know that that's exactly what those apostates did. They grumbled against the leaders, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb. They certainly grumbled against God. Not only could he not provide a good menu and a variety of food, but he actually brought them out in the wilderness to kill them. They actually thought they had it better when they were unsaved, when they were back in Egypt. And you see, the tendency is always to be looking for excuses for our unbelief and our disobedience and maybe even for apostasy itself. Now, we live at a time when every time there is a failure in the church, we almost have to call, in Canada we would call this, a royal commission. We've got to look into this. What what was wrong with that church that this occurred? What was wrong with that ministry that that man did what he did? What was wrong? And when you come to the Bible, you notice that the 11 apostles not didn't get together afterwards and say, hmm, what did we do wrong that Judas would apostatize? Paul didn't have a holy huddle to find out what he and the other brothers and sisters did wrong, that Demas would leave them because of the allurements of this present age. And we have a tendency to think that if we do this right, it will work. Now, we're to seek to do it as right as we can. But we're not not to think that if we do it right, there won't be any falling away, 
any spurious faith, any shallow conversions, any superficial responses to Jesus Christ. It was all through the Old Testament, and it was all through the New Testament. Now, I've pastored a couple of churches, but I've never been in a church close to the church at Corinth. And when you walk in the foyer at the church of Corinth, there's, there's photographs of the founding pastors. First there's Paul, then there's Peter, and then there's Apollos. And you think, wow. And then you read 1 Corinthians, and you really go, wow. With those guys starting this thing and following up, it's got to work. It must work. And if you go to the churches in Galatia, you would see that in their cornerstone, founding pastor, Paul. <laughs> and they're that close to denying the truth. We've been slowly but hopefully surely working through this chapter. I've given a little kind of illustration just to help us. We've, we've driven up to the curb on 6 Hebrew Lane. And, and we've looked at this house, and frankly, from where we were in the car, there's not a lot of curb appeal, is there? It's one of those chapters you'd kind of, okay, well, I, I know you should read all the words of the Bible. Let's get through this so we can get to chapter 7 and find out about Melchizedek. There's a lot of great chapters in the Bible. I'm not sure I really want to check out chapter 6. But we have. The preachers convinced us that we should at least go to the front door, go up to the porch, knock on the door, and, and at least poke our heads in each room and kind of see what's going on. And the first room was a caution that we're never, ever, ever to pit one part of the Bible against another part of the Bible so that we will get the Bible to say what we want it to say. We are to see that both the warnings of the Bible and the promises of the Bible come from God and they're designed to elicit saving, persevering faith to the children of God. We went to the second room and it was a room of warning. And we saw that to walk away from Jesus Christ is not a light thing. The most precious thing to God is his beloved son. He allowed him once to come to this planet and to be treated terribly. He was mocked, he was spit on, he was falsely tried in a kangaroo court after kangaroo court. He's condemned to die, but never again. And any person who professes Jesus Christ and then walks away, they are ratifying the decision that was made that Easter in 30 AD. They are saying that Jesus is not worthy of my time and my life and my effort and my sweat and my toil. I've got better things to live for. He's a phony, he's a fraud. And we need to visit that room because that warning is spoken to us. But last night, we went to room three, and it was encouraging, wasn't it? To hear that God 
loves his people, and God recognizes and observes the marks of grace, the things that evidence true saving grace in his people. And then at the end, we were encouraged in terms of some counsel from the preacher, the preacher of Hebrews, that we are to stop being spiritually lazy if we don't want to apostatize. And we are to find, in verse 12, people to imitate. People to imitate, and who are we to pick? The phonies and the frauds in the church? No. We are to imitate people who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, the moment you meet a true, genuine believer, the jig's up for you. You and I, and we have no excuse for not pressing on and persevering. Because every time you meet a true believer, you are being confronted with a miracle, a supernatural act of God. Because nobody is naturally a believer. Nobody naturally perseveres and presses on in spite of absolutely everything, even at times the losing of their own lives, unless God has done this. And I can look through the church and find all kinds of phonies. And if I'm looking for an excuse not to believe, there's lots of them, And God doesn't make any attempt to hide that, does he? No. But that's what I'm not to look for. I'm to look for those who are pressing on and persevering in the faith to the end. And mime them, mimic them, imitate them. And as we talked last night, not only a great biblical people persevered, for example, in um, Hebrews chapter 11, but we're to find godly people in our own church. And we're to hang around them, and we're to bug them, and we're to be in their face, and we're to find out what makes you tick. Why do you keep going with all that you've faced? Why are you pressing on? Why are you persevering? Why are you hanging in there? When the providence of God seems to be contradicting the promises of God in your life. And you want to hang with those people and you want to understand and listen to them and observe them and watch them because the most important thing in your Christian life is to finish, is to cross the line, to persevere in hope till the end. Now, in case we don't know who to imitate, the preacher of the book of Hebrews gives us a glorious example in Hebrews chapter 13 to verse, or chapter 6, verses 13 to 18. He picks Abraham. Now, as I hope we'll see, he does it for more than one reason, but Abraham is the prototype of true, saving, persevering faith. Paul picks this guy, and I say it reverently, in Romans chapter 4. James picks Abraham in James chapter 2. 
the preacher of Hebrews will pick Abraham and Sarah quite a bit in, in chapter 11. He is the prototype of what it means to press on and persevere to the end. And to be brutally honest, if anybody should have packed it in, it should have been Abraham. Now, what we want to do this evening, and since it's raining and there's nowhere to go, I could have 8 or 12 or 14 points, but I will have, uh, I could have 5 points, but I think I'll have 3. First of all, we want to look at the argument. Secondly, the analogy. And then thirdly, the application. The argument in verses 13 to 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham. We have finally got there. We were concerned about warnings and how that fits into promises. But you know, warnings lead to promises. Warnings enable us to really grasp and see and pursue the promises of God. Now, I just want to say a couple of things about the promises of God. Um, I'm getting both old, and because of the COVID the last couple of years, I can't remember exactly when. It doesn't matter to you. But uh, I will say about a year ago in the late spring, a young fellow who was in his late 20s came to see me. We had to distance on my back porch because of the rules in Canada at the time. And uh, that was fine. It was a beautiful spring day. And um, he had just finished Bible college, the end of April. And for about the last month, or six weeks, he was locked up in his room, depressed. Seldom came out except for the basics of life. And someone suggested, well, why don't you go and see Don? And he came to see me, and he obviously looked very distressed and very discouraged and very down. And he told me that for the last four to six weeks, he hardly left his room. And I said, well, what's the problem? He said, I've had a number of relationships with girls, good girls, good relationships, but none of them have ended in marriage. And I think he was 28, I want to get married. He said, I told the Lord this year at Bible College that the next girl I date, I want to marry her. And if it isn't the Lord's will, don't let me date the girl and don't let a relationship start. Well, he dated the girl, a relationship started. And before the year was out, and Lots of guys have heard this one. She said, you know, it's not you, it's me. But I, d I don't think this is going to work. Uh, let's just end everything. And uh, you go your way. You're a great guy. I appreciate this year of friendship, but it just isn't going to work. And so he said, I became very depressed. I said, are you mad at the girl? He says, no, I'm mad at God. And I said, why? 
And he said, well, God told me that if I dated this girl, it would end in marriage. And I said, you didn't tell me that. What you actually told me is what you told God he should be doing. And he said, well, well, he, he let the relationship go, so he must have agreed with what I said. He made a promise to me. And I said, the only promises God makes are the word of God. And you never tell God what his promises are going to be. God came to Abraham to tell him the promise that God was going to make. Now, the second thing we need to understand about promises is that all the promises of God are divine. They are supernatural. What that means is that there is no natural means of fulfilling the promise and bringing it to realization. The divine promise needs a divine fulfillment. And one of our problems in the Christian life, and we'll see it in a minute with Abraham, is that we look for human ways of fulfilling divine promises. God said he's going to save a multitude of people. I'll bet we could get a multitude in here if the ushers were the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. What do you think? Yeah, exactly. But does the church ever do something like that? And see, their motive is right, but the methodology is wrong. We think when God gives a promise that he's really saying to me, now, Don, figure out how to fulfill it. But he's not. He's saying, Don, there's no way you can fulfill that promise. It's a divine promise. It's a miraculous, supernatural promise. You don't get anybody converted by pretty cheerleaders from Dallas or by having clowns at a youth group or by giving free candy to kids if they raise their hands to come to Jesus. And you see, the problem with the promises of God is that they come to us and we cannot fulfill them. And that's why a lot of people pack it in and say, who needs the grief? But God isn't asking me to fulfill his promises. First of all, I can't. If I could, I wouldn't need his promises. God is coming to me and to you and to us as a church and saying something that is humanly impossible. It's frankly unbelievable. For example, when God comes to Abraham, he makes a promise. And in verse 14, he says, I'm going to bless you and really bless you and I'm going to multiply you. I don't know if you know where these uh, words come from. They're from Genesis chapter 1. They're part of the original creation mandate and announcement. But the problem is God comes to an old guy 
who's 75 years old. And his wife, although she's still drop-dead gorgeous, is 65 and unable to have children. <laughs> and, and his name used to be Abe Ram. Ab or Abe, it means father, and Ram means exalted one. Highly respected in his community. And God comes to him and he says, well, we've got to do something about that name. That promotes you. I'm going to give you a name that promotes me. And he calls him Abraham, which means the father of many. And every time Abraham met somebody, Pastor Latour, my name is the father of many. Your immediate response is, how many? None. That's like a bald guy going up and saying, hi, my name's Harry. <laughs> this is amazing. God supernaturally, graciously calls this man and his wife out of paganism. The idolatry of all that the world really is, and the world all is Babylon. And draws him, and he has to leave his people and his homeland. Not only was he there for 75 years, but he obviously was somebody. And he packs the whole thing up in some U-Hauls and, and, and doesn't even know where he's, go, where he's going. God says, I'll tell you when you get there. And his wife says, Abraham, will you stop and get directions? And he says, no, God will tell us. God will tell us. And he comes to a land called Canaan. And he comes to a people that are no people. They don't even exist yet. Oh, there's Canaanites and parasites and all kinds of ites, but there are no people. And God comes to him, and he says, I'm going to make you a fulfiller of the original divine mandate in creation to fill the earth. What a promise. Now the text says, in verse 15, and thus Abraham patiently waited. Don't you love the Bible? Did he? Patiently wait? No. Now is the Bible lying? No. I get an idea. They do this in America. We'll get a surrogate mother. Abraham, you can have this promised child through a surrogate mother. And so they get a handmaid named Hagar. She conceives and they have a son and everybody lives happily ever after, don't they? No. No. From 75 years of age to 100, this man patiently waited because God said something that was humanly impossible to do. Only God could do it. 
And then he not only waited patiently, but verse 15 says he obtained the promise. And the promise was the joy of their life. In fact, they named him Laughter, Isaac. Well, it's not exactly a multitude, but you start with one, but they're one and done. Abraham's an old man. His body is no longer able to produce seed to impregnate a woman. And, of course, Sarah long gone in terms of ovulating and producing an egg. And miraculously, they have this child. And then we don't know for sure how old he is, probably in his mid-teens, God comes to Abraham and says, now you take that kid, you go up to that mountain, and you sacrifice him. Wow, what kind of a God is that? I couldn't believe in a God like that. Could you? And he took his son, the son he loved, his only son, and he, he told his wife, we and the servants are going up to the mountain to worship, and we and the servants will be back. What faith. And they get all the way to the mountain. Isaac looks around. They've done this a thousand times. He says, I see the wood. I see the fire. I see everything that we need to sacrifice in our worship. But where's, where's the animal to sacrifice? And as Abraham's tying his only begotten son, the son of his love, onto the altar, he says, God will provide. What an amazing, amazing God. Now the promises of God, the problem with the promises of God are unbelievable. Nobody has that kind of faith to believe that kind of stuff. And so what God does in our weakness is what he did to Abraham. He not only made a promise, but then he puts his hand on the Bible, <clears throat> if I can talk in that language, because he couldn't swear by any other, because nothing else is greater than him. He says, I, God, so help me, God, will fulfill these promises. And so he not only had a promise, but a pledge. He not only had this word from the Lord, but he had this solemn oath and vow that God will keep his promise. Now, what's the point of all that? The point is, if, if you want to walk away from Christ, you have no excuse. The problem isn't God. Isn't it amazing how people want to put God on trial again? He's not on trial. But I'm looking for any reason I can to get out of this because it demands mental sweat and energy and fervent prayer and self-discipline, and it demands all of the things that are not naturally a part of me. They are no more naturally a part of me than Abraham naturally could 
produce a kid. This has to be supernatural. You read through, not right now, unless it's getting boring, you read through chapter 11, and you see what these people went through. Well, some of them stopped lions and quenched fires. Some were cut in two. Some were wandering around in animal skins, living in caves. I remember the first time I started to read the book of Fox's Book of Martyrs. I couldn't read it. The things that the people of God have suffered just because God has made promises and they believe them. And God knows how hard it is. And so he not only gives us his promise, which should by any stretch of the imagination be enough, but he gives us an oath and a pledge as well. And Abraham waited patiently and obtained. Now, but he didn't wait patiently. It's it's the same in Romans 4. He, He didn't struggle with the fact of, although he was impotent, he would have a child. Of course he did. But do you know what the New Testament's about? It's about the gospel. <laughs> There's no record in the New Testament that Abraham or Sarah ever sinned. Isn't that amazing? That God is able to blot out their sin as they struggled in believing with the, the promise. And as it said earlier last night, he does not overlook our works of love and joy an effort to serve the people of God and to be faithful. You know, if you check my file in heaven, you'll see, and you can pick any age, two, it was never a terrible two, never a crazy teenager, never a senile old man. I have credited to me the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. What a gospel. Who would have ever thought a sinner like me could be forgiven and there would be no record that all of my sins have been separated me as far as the east is from the west. They've been put in the deepest sea, the sea of forgetfulness. And what God is going to put on display is the faithful, patient waiting of his people. And that's the problem, isn't it? Do you know why people pack it in? They get tired of waiting. And do you know what waiting is? Waiting is being willing to take all the time that God is willing to take to answer his promises. And you see, I'm not looking at my watch. I hope you're not looking at yours and saying, God, you better hurry up. I'm to be patiently waiting, waiting patiently. And patiently doesn't mean I'm drumming my fingers and, you know, like I sometimes do if my wife isn't quite ready when we're supposed to leave. Honking the horn. Marlene, come on! 
I'm supposed to preach at a church and tell them how patient and loving God is. What are you doing? (laughs) But I'm to say, you know, it's his promise. And he will supernaturally accomplish it when he wants. And that's why when you come to the Bible and the gospel, you see that God's very time-oriented. When were you chosen? Before time began. When did Jesus come? In the fullness of time. When were you drawn to the Savior? Oh, at the right time. When will you die? Well, Hebrews says there's a divine appointment for every one of us. He hasn't let me in on it yet when my time is. But everything's on schedule. I had a very good friend. He's now with the Lord, and he was going through a very struggling time. And he said to me one day, he said, I wouldn't run a train station like the Lord runs the church. And I said, oh, the church isn't the train station. God's ways are way beyond us, and he's not asking for, for memos to be sent up to head office. With, uh, he, there, is, there is no box said, saying, we appreciate your comments, insights, and, you know. No. I've been saved almost 56 years. He's never once man went down and said, thanks, Don, I never thought of that. He usually says, well, he always says, just, I don't need your input. You just wait patiently. Now, the argument is this, that if Abraham had no excuse for disbelieving the promise, neither do you and I. Then the analogy, he says in verse 16, for people, he's going to argue from the lesser to the greater. And the Bible often does that. For example, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, if you can get two sparrows for a quarter, won't God look after his people? You're worth way more than a couple of birds. If God closes the lily of the valley, if he feeds, if he looks after his creation, he looks after his people. You don't want to be anxious. And see, he's arguing from the lesser to the the greater. And that's what he's arguing here. He says, even in ordinary life, you trust people once they sign on the dotted line. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is the final confirmation. You know, I went in one day, we had lived for, until I was 50 in a parsonage. At 50, we bought a house. I went into the bank, the guy didn't know me from Adam. He gave me $150,000. All I had to do was sign a thing of paper. And then he told me, you have to give me whatever it was, I forget now, but 500 bucks a month until this is paid off. I signed the paper, shook his hand, and said, thank you, I've never seen him since. The house is paid for. We trust people, don't we? Yeah. 
Well, if we can trust people, can we not trust God? You see, the fourth room that we're in tonight is promise. Three times, verse 13, 15, and 17 is promise. The promises of God. Do you see why we need the warnings, though? Do you see why they work together? Because if I don't get rid of the junk that's going to keep me from trusting, I will perish. And when you get converted, you come out with your hands up, and God comes and he begins to pat you down, and he frisks you. And you know what he's looking for? If you're trusting in anything other than Jesus, any of your righteousness, your goodness, whatever it might be, Have you diversified your portfolio just in case this Jesus thing doesn't work? And the Bible says, oh, it's all or nothing. Right from the beginning, you give yourself by persevering faith to Jesus Christ for time and eternity, and you can trust him. If, if, If you can trust another human being in a business deal, then you can trust God. Oh, by the way, in in the book of Genesis, God himself cut a deal with Abraham, didn't he? He cut a covenant. Remember, they got those animals and put them down each side of the lane, and they were to walk through. That's how you cut deals back then. And God puts Abraham to sleep, and he goes through for both of them. What a savior. And he says, I'll, I'll keep all of God's side of the deal, and I'll keep all of Abraham's side of the deal. What a gospel. Why, why would you walk away from this? Why would you look anywhere else? I remember one day, some Jehovah Witness came to the door, and they wanted to talk to me. And I said, sure, come on in. And I said, but here's the deal. I said, I'm going to give you my testimony. And if you have something better than that, I want to hear it. And I told them I was a sinner and Jesus had saved me and died on the cross for my sin, all pardoned all my sin. Do you know what they did? They walked away. Well, what are they going to say? What, what are they, what's the counter offer? Well, you know, if you knock on so many doors and if you do this, who knows, you might be one of the, well, probably the 144,000 are filled up, but, you know, hopefully things will work out. And, and you're thinking, really? I, I, I have a pardon from the king of the universe for time and eternity, and I'm going to trade that in for what? A couple of box tops from cereal boxes. And the tragedy is they believe that. And the tragedy is that most of those people who believe that used to go to a Bible-believing church. Now, we're not to beat ourselves. The Bible says that's part of life in this world. But, oh, I'm to look for people like Abraham who are persevering to the end. Okay, so we've seen the argument. Promises come from God, and promises can only be fulfilled by God. And God promises to keep his promises. All I have to do is patiently wait. 
and in his time I will obtain. Some things I got right away. The moment I believed in the fall of 1966, I got a pardon from the king for all of my sin. The Holy Spirit moved in and took over residence. All of a sudden, the Bible made sense, at least a little more sense than it did before. All of a sudden, I loved going to church. I loved being with the people of God. But that was just the beginning. It's been tremendous the last... And the thing is, there's so much more yet to get. It's like one of those game shows. And you think, will the prizes ever stop? And the answer, of course, is no. They are eternal. Because they've been purchased by the eternal Son of God. Shedding his blood for his people. And you can take that to the bank. Then we saw the analogy. (laughs) We trust people all the time. Why can't we trust God? And then thirdly, the application. And it's a two-sided application. The first side is God. Okay. Verse uh, uh, 17, so when God desired to show show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And then, so that, in verse 18, by two unchangeable things. You know what the two things are? The promise and the oath. Sometimes I promise things to my grandchildren, and they don't remember a lot, but they do remember when I promise something. (laughs) Okay, and they have an amazing way of kind of turning the promise. You said you'd take us to the zoo, and I said, well, you have to eat your vegetables. Oh, I didn't remember hearing that. But if I wrote a note and signed it with my name and gave it to Bethany, She's got me. And God loves to be God in the good sense of that word. He loves me to come to him and plead and pray and argue his promises back to him. You see, the dear guy that came to visit me, he thought that his promises carried weight. God's under no obligation to keep those promises, but he keeps his promises And do you know what backs it up? The problem with good old grandpa is I can promise something, but I maybe can't keep it. Not because I'm trying to deceive the kids. Maybe I can't afford it. Maybe I'm getting a little more wonky and really couldn't walk around the zoo for a day and a half. Whatever it might be. But notice what it says here. God is in capable of lying. Impossible is the very same word that we saw in in, uh, Hebrews 6 verse 4. God is incapable of lying. Do you know that God couldn't lie even if he wanted to? I remember when I was a young Christian, they would ask, "Is, is, is there things that God can't do? For example, can God create a math problem he can't solve? Or can God make a rock so big that he can't lift lift it? And of course, the answer to those things is no. That's a piece of cake with him. 
But when you get to his character, that's a different thing. His DNA, if I don't think he has DNA, but his DNA is wired to always tell the truth and to accomplish what he said he would. That's why Hebrews 11 says, without faith it's impossible to please God, and by faith we believe that God created the world out of nothing. You know, God doesn't need anything to fulfill his promises. Do you know he came to an elderly lady, an old man, and they conceived and bore a son? And if you think that's something... 2,000 years later, he'll come to a teenage virgin who has never known a man, and she'll conceive and have a son. Do you know that he was able on Mount Moriah to come, and just at the right moment, Abraham, stop! And then they heard the bleeding of the animal in the bushes, and they substitute. And do you know, 2,000 years later, when God's only begotten, beloved son was on the cross, There was no wait and stop. He died. And yet three days later, he was raised from the dead. And 40 days later, he was received back into heaven. And there isn't some old doddering guy up there who's 2,000 years old and not even sure where he is. And, you know, oh, the Son of God micromanages the universe for the glory of his Father and for the good of his people. Do you know he doesn't get anybody mixed up as to who they are, what they've done, what they should do? Do you know that every day, every event, down to the rising and the falling of the sun, is for the sake of Jesus Christ? Everything, every drop of rain, There will be no more rain than what brings pleasure to the Lord Jesus Christ. What a Savior. God has kept his promises. And the neat thing is that there's a bunch more to be kept. There's a bunch more to be kept. My birthday's in April, and my parents would give me presents in April. But birthday was never like Christmas. Boy, that's when the stuff really came. And you know... The stuff in the good sense of that word is coming. We just have to cross the river, don't we? But until then, we wait patiently. So from God's side, all he has to do is keep his word. Will he do it? Yeah. Has he never not kept his word? No. He never will. It is impossible for him to not keep his word. Like I said, he couldn't lie if he wanted to. And the second application is on our side. We, in verse 18, who have fled for refuge so that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, the encouragement isn't in me. You know, I'm really ripped and got lots of muscles and I can hold tight. The encouragement is what God is doing. What he's done, what he's promised to do, what he is doing as he fulfills his promises. Do you know before this is over, there are going to be people from every people group 
in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's one thing to save millions and millions of sinners. But you know what's more astounding? There's a day coming when he'll present all of us faultless before the Father, and he will do it with great joy. And in one sense, we're going to be his bride. In another sense, we're going to be his children. Here am I and the children you have given me. Do you know there's a day coming when I will never doubt? I won't even need faith. I will see him face. I'll do FaceTime with Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. What a gospel. And the Lord's just saying, don't wait. I know there's pain. I know there's heartache. I know there's suffering. But you know the good thing about the gospel? Everything that used to be a curse, even death, has been turned into a blessing. You know, in the Disney programs, it doesn't look good. There's this pretty girl who looks kind of haggard, and she's, you know, uh, cleaning out the cinders or whatever it might be. And... Boy, it doesn't look promising. Ugly stepsisters, the whole bit. I'm probably getting some of these mixed up. But God, but you know, the good fairy takes a pumpkin and turns it into a chariot, a couple of white rats into beautiful horses. And of course, the real kicker, some warty looking frog is going to be turned into a handsome prince. And of course, they live happily ever after, don't they? Sleeping Beauty, I don't know how long she slept, wakes up, doesn't have bad breath, kisses the prince, and there, <laughs> it's amazing. But God doesn't work like that, and that's what we would like him to do. Do you know that God keeps the pumpkin a pumpkin, and the rats, rats, and the frogs, frogs, and he blesses us. He takes everything that once was a curse, and now he uses it, as a blessing to sanctify his people. When have you grown the most? Everyone who's a true believer knows I grew much more in the trials than in, quote, the blessings. When do you pray best? I say prayers all the time. You know when I pray best? When it's tough. When providence seems to be contradicting the promises of God. And when I'm tempted to read the promises in light of the providence, God always comes back to me by his word and says, no, Don, the, the spectacles are the promises. You interpret your providence by the promises. And we're always trying to think that, well, the warnings contradict the promises and the providence of God contradicts them. No, no, not even close. And all he wants me to do is hold on fast. Hold on fast. And I'm to hold on fast in the light of the hope that is set before me, before us. This is a great house, isn't it, on 6 Hebrews Lane? I come here often. There's times I need a kick in the pants, and the warnings do that. But, oh, there's many times you just need to be encouraged and, and need to say, oh, press on, Don. That what you're seeing is not the truth. What you're reading is. And you're not to look at this by the feeble eye of sight, but, oh, by the ever-increasing eye of faith. 
And you remember, you remember, you remember that God uses nothing naturally in this world. He doesn't need a certain president to be sitting in the White House. He doesn't need this or that or the other thing. He raises up a Nebuchadnezzar, a Cyrus, whoever it might be. They're his servants, and they don't even know it. And he is fulfilling his purposes that are unchangeable, immutable. They cannot be changed. If you think the law of the Medes and the Persians was unalterable, all the decrees of God are way more unalterable. Anyways, you know what I mean. (laughs) And all we're just to hold on. And we come back again and again and again, and we fill our hearts and our minds with the promises. We could quit the conference tonight, but there's one more room. And let's see tomorrow night who's in that room.